As we begin our study this evening, we're considering the third term of communion, and I will read that for us. It says that presbyterial church government and manner of worship are alone of divine right and unalterable, and that the most perfect model of these as yet attained is exhibited in the form of government and directory for worship adopted by the Church of Scotland in the Second Reformation. Last time we considered the form of Presbyterial Church government, and our focus this evening will be upon the directory for the public worship of God. Just a little bit of historical information as we begin looking at this document The directory for the public worship of God was completed by the Westminster Assembly uh, at the close of 1644, just prior to the completion of the form of Presbyterial Church government. And it was approved by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland February the 3rd, 1645. If you recall from our study last week, the uh, form of Presbyterial Church government was approved a week later, February the 10th, 1645. So this actually, the Directory for Public Worship, actually uh, precedes uh, the form of Presbyterial Church government, both in its completion by the Westminster Assembly as well as its adoption by the Church of Scotland. In the Act of the General Assembly of the Kirk of Scotland, the Church of Scotland, for the establishing and putting in execution of the directory for the public worship of God. That's the introduction to the act, the adopting act. We should note the following two excerpts, I think, that are very helpful as we look at the directory for public worship. The first excerpt says this, Whereas an happy unity and uniformity in religion amongst the Kirks of Christ in these three kingdoms, united under one sovereign, that is one king, having been long and earnestly wished for by the godly and well-affected amongst us, was propounded as a main article of the large treaty without which band and bulwark, no safe, well-grounded, and lasting peace could be expected. And afterward, with greater strength and maturity, revived in the solemn league and covenant of the three kingdoms, whereby they stand straightly obliged to endeavor the nearest uniformity in one form of church government, directory of worship, confession of faith, and form of catechizing. So, in the very adopting act, I would just simply have you note that they indicate that the publication of the the directory for public worship is in order to achieve that goal that was stated in the Solemn League and Covenant, that goal of uniformity, the nearest uniformity in worship possible. And so we need to keep that in mind as we look at the directory for public worship. This was for the three kingdoms. 
And then one other excerpt that I would uh, read from this Adopting Act uh, that was adopted uh, February the 3rd, 1645 by the Act of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. And it says this, And now this great work being so far advanced that a directory for the public worship of God in all the three kingdoms being agreed upon by the honorable houses of the Parliament of England. I want you to notice as I read through this, the care and the caution that was taken with this directory. How many different groups of of people this passed through. This was not adopted very quickly or hastily, very, very carefully by these various groups. Again, being agreed upon by the honorable houses of the Parliament of England after consultation with the divines of both kingdoms there assembled, that's the Westminster Assembly, and sent to us for our approbation, sent to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, that being also agreed upon by this Kirk and Kingdom of Scotland, it may be in the name of both kingdoms presented to the king for his royal consent and ratification. The General Assembly, having most seriously considered, revised, and examined the directory aforementioned, after several public readings of it, after much deliberation, both publicly and in private committees, after full liberty given to all to object against it, and earnest invitations of all who have any scruples about it, to make known the same, that they might be satisfied, do unanimously and without a contrary voice agree to and approve the following directory in all the heads thereof together with the preface set before it and doth require, discern, and ordain that according to the plain tenor and meaning thereof and the intent of the preface it be carefully and uniformly observed and practiced by all the ministers and others within this kingdom whom it doth concern. Uh, an extended quote, but I think that it illustrates very clearly, again, the care that was taken in adopting this directory for public worship. And then once it was adopted... It was ordained and required of all the ministers, not some, not those who liked it, whatever. It was ordained that all the ministers within the church use this and follow this, this directory for public worship, uh, that it says it be carefully and uniformly observed and practiced by all the ministers. It uh, mentioned earlier uh, in that quote something to the effect of, um, uh, I believe it mentioned something about revising. Um, I just wanted to say something about that. It says, together with the preface, let's see. 
Yeah, it says, the General Assembly, having most seriously considered, revised, and examined the directory aforementioned. Uh, I think that the, as far as I know at least, the only revision was the addition of the preface at the very beginning. Uh, that's the only thing that I'm aware of that was changed from what came from the Westminster Assembly. And that was primarily, I mean, there were uh, many reasons, but one of the things that you find within the preface is the fact that it says uh, that the seating, being seated around the Lord's table is not optional. Uh, it states in the preface that sitting around the Lord's table rather than receiving it in pews is not optional, that it, that it must be um, uh, done in that manner, to receive the Lord's table that, in that manner. And so that's one of the things that's stated in the preface. But uh, the preface is a part of that document and should be read along with it. <clears throat> Why is it called a directory for public worship rather than a form for public worship? Why the term directory? A directory is intended to guide the church in how to worship by including all those necessary elements in worship without requiring explicit conformity to the very words used in prayers in baptisms, and in the Lord's Supper, in weddings, etc., the express, the precise words are not required to be used. It's a directory in that sense. Yet it does give to us all of the main heads, all of those uh, elements of worship that must be included in our worship. Whereas a form for worship, such as the Book of Common Prayer, specified the, the actual words, the specific prayers to be prayed and precise words to be used when administering the sacraments. It also required, that is, the Book of Common Prayer also required other acts in worship which Presbyterians found to be disagreeable to the Word of God, such as kneeling while taking the Lord's Supper, signing oneself with the sign of the cross, the minister wearing a surplus, which is a white gown worn over his clothing. These things were also included and uh, uh, various other kinds of rituals and ceremonies that were not found agreeable to the word of God were included in the Book of Common Prayer. And uh, so a form uh, binds one to the precise words as opposed to a directory which which gives one the main heads, those elements intended to be used in worship. <clears throat> As you read in the preface again to the Directory for the Public Worship of God, it was contended by the Church of Scotland that the Book of Common Prayer produced, quote, an idle and unedifying ministry which contented itself with set forms made to their hands by others without putting forth themselves to exercise the gift of prayer. And so what you find, again, one of the primary uh, problems that the 
Westminster divines the Church of Scotland had with the Book of Common Prayer is that a minister would get up and he would read the form prayers. He would sit down. He was not uh, exercising himself as he should be doing uh, in, with the gift of prayer and uh, praying that God would direct him and give him words appropriate to the needs of God's people in prayer and this type of thing. <clears throat> and again, uh, just one other quote from the preface uh, concerning this issue of the directory as opposed to a form. Uh, we note this, wherein our care hath been to hold forth such things as are of divine institution in every ordinance and other things we have endeavored to set forth according to the rules of Christian prudence agreeable to the general rules of the word of God, our meaning therein being only that the general heads, the sense and scope of the prayers, and other parts of public worship being known to all, there may be a consent of all the churches in those things that contain the substance of the service and worship of God. And the ministers may be hereby directed in their administrations to keep like soundness in doctrine and prayer, and may, if need be, have some help and furniture, and yet so as they become not hereby slothful and negligent in stirring up the gifts of Christ in them. And so in this uh, quote, um, it is emphasized that the heads that are given, the main points, the, the elements of worship that are specifically mentioned in the Directory for Public Worship are agreeable to the Scripture, and that uh, in certain details, and we'll talk about some of those this evening, uh, there are principles that are uh, agreeable to the general principles of God's Word and to Christian prudence that were applied to these details or to these circumstances of worship. Now, we want to, again, I, uh, hold that because I do have more to say about that uh, in just a little bit. <clears throat> and so the rest of the time, we're going to uh, mainly spend our time answering this question, what is Presbyterian worship? What is Presbyterian worship? I mean question we want to answer this evening. And I have three main points uh, to discuss uh, concerning that question. And so I'll give those again to you at the outset. And you can uh, then go back as we go through them more in detail. First of all, Presbyterian worship is worship by divine right. The second main point under that is that Presbyterian worship is worship led by lawful ministers. And thirdly, Presbyterian worship is worship in uniformity. Uniformity. So let's go back through these and look at these uh, main points in answering the question, what is Presbyterian worship? First of all, it is worship by divine right 
rather than a worship established by the mere whim and will of man. The worship of God, dear ones, is not an issue of human preference, but rather an issue of divine prescription. Never confuse the two. Divine worship is not an issue of human preference, but an issue of divine prescription. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, the Lord God could not make it more clear concerning worship when he says, What thing soever I command you, observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. What I command you to do, don't add to what I command. Don't take away from what I command. That's the prescription for God's worship. As well as in the New Testament, Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, verses 6 and 7. The Lord Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah, speaks to the Pharisees and the scribes to this effect. He says, He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of of men. When we worship according to the doctor, according to the commandments of men, we worship God in vain. That's what Jesus says. And so this is and we could go on and on with many passages, but that summarizes, I believe, what the scripture teaches concerning the divine right of worship. And the principle that is applied in this case to worship is called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. Simply stated, what scripture does not authorize, it forbids. Or to say it another way, what God does not prescribe in his word, he forbids. Now, that authorization found in Scripture can come by precept. God can declare it by commandment, as in the command in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. An explicit command as to, from Paul to Timothy, that he is in worship to preach the word, to be faithful, to be preaching it in season and out of season. He is called Uh, to do so. That's an explicit command. But the scripture can also authorize worship by authorized example as well, as in the case of Christ and the apostles gathering to worship on the first day of the week. We find through the example of Christ in John 20, verses 19 and 26, where on the day of his resurrection he appears to his disciples and he commissions them. 
He appears eight days later, very specifically, he appears eight days later, would still be on the first day of the week, and appears to them again to confirm and to commission. And uh, this is uh, confirmed by the apostles in Acts 20, verse 7, and many other places. Again, I'm uh, trying to move through these rather quickly, but Acts 20, verse 7 speaks of the church being gathered together on the first day of the week. So, Scripture authorizes practices of worship by precept, that is commandment, by authorized example, Christ, his apostles, and by good and necessary inference, as in the duty to administer baptism to infants. Now, good and necessary inference does not mean that it is less authoritative, less binding than an explicit command or an authorized example. Each of these are equally authoritative and binding upon God's people. Uh, With regard to uh, administering baptism to infants, and there are many ways to argue that particular position, but we find by inference that households, it speaks of many places in the New Testament, at least four or five, where whole households were baptized. Uh, As we look back to the uh, Old Testament, we find whole households being circumcised, meaning all the males within the household being circumcised. And it uses that term, uh, house or household. When we come to the New Covenant, it speaks of the household being baptized. Even as infants were a part of the household and were circumcised in the Old Covenant, And because there is no explicit commandment to forbid the sign of the covenant being applied to infants in the new covenant, when it mentions that whole households are baptized in the new covenant, we infer by good and necessary inference that that uh, that includes infants as it did in the old covenant. For example, in Acts 16, Verse 15, Lydia and her household were baptized. In Acts 16, verse 33, the Philippian jailer and his household were baptized. One other good and necessary inference, I think, uh, would be the fact that you cannot find any place where women in the New Testament are uh, uh, spoken of uh, coming to the Lord's table, whereas you find uh, uh, men uh, specifically Uh, identified, you cannot find women as to gender coming to the Lord's table. Well, because it does not specifically say that, uh, are we left to believe that women are not to come to the Lord's table? Well, again, by good and necessary inference, uh, because we see that the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was not administered to women, circumcision was not administered to women, but in the New Covenant it is. So likewise, we would understand that if the, the, the sign of the covenant to, uh, as to entry into the visible church is administered to women, then likewise, the sign uh, which speaks of fellowship and communion with Christ, 
which is the Lord's Supper, would as well be administered to, uh, uh, to women uh, who uh, have reached an age of uh, discernment and knowledge and uh, uh, can examine themselves. And so um, uh, we, we see the, the necessity uh, in many, many places, um, not simply those two, but there are many, many places where this particular um, uh, argument is used. Uh, when Jesus says um, concerning the resurrection, I am the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he builds upon the little word am, uh, he doesn't. Uh, he he uh, draws a good and necessary inference from that that he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, and that's an argument from good and necessary inference that the Lord Jesus Himself uses. And there are many of those kinds of cases uh, in the Scripture. Continuing on, then, with regard to the regulative principle. We find in the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, uh, paragraph 1, these words. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. And so it excludes all forms of worship that are not prescribed by God in the Holy Scripture. The great Scottish reformer John Knox summarized the regulative principle of worship in this way. All worshiping, honoring, or service invented by the brain of man in the religion of God without his own express commandment is idolatry. You know, John Knox was always a guy who just was uh, kind of uh, subtle about what he had to say. Uh, he's very clear here uh, that... Uh, that any kind of innovation that we would bring into worship, anything that's not expressly declared by God to be practiced is idolatry, a form of idolatry. <clears throat> Just an illustration, and I can't claim this as being original with me, but hopefully it will help you to understand, again, the nature of the regulative principle of worship. Suppose you were dining in a restaurant and the waiter came to take your order. And after looking over the menu, your eyes fell on exactly that uh, dish that you had been waiting for. It was a prime rib dinner. And uh, so you told the waiter to go and, uh, and bring to you this prime rib dinner. Uh, Will you not tell the waiter if he, on his own, decides to bring you a chicken dinner to take back the chicken dinner because that's not what you ordered? Won't you tell him, bring me what I ordered? But what if the waiter reasoned with you, I thought a lean chicken dinner would be better for you? And at very least, it would bring me greater pleasure to know that I brought you what I deemed was best. 
Most of us, I think, can clearly see the problem here. Who is supposed to be serving whom? I dare say you would tell that waiter again, you would tell him, take back the chicken and bring me the prime rib that I ordered. Now, if you, a mere fallible creature, would not appreciate such innovation in such an ordinary kind of thing as a meal, should it appear strange to you or to myself that the Most High God would not take pleasure in your or my innovation in worship, regardless of how much we believe it blessed us? He will only receive in worship what he has ordered. Nothing more or nothing less is acceptable to a holy God. The principle, moving on to still under the regulative principle, moving on to another point under that, the principle of worship adopted by most churches is quite different from the regulative principle. Remember, we stated that the regulative principle, by way of just a summary, uh, is this, what scripture does not authorize, it forbids. This would be more the principle that, that the vast majority of churches follow. What scripture does not forbid, it permits. In other words, what the scripture is silent about may be practiced in worship. What the scripture does not expressly condemn can be practiced in worship according to this view. In other words, since Christ in the New Testament has not expressly forbidden drama presentations in worship or dancing in worship or the liturgical use of candles and incense or the use of musical instruments or the use of uninspired hymns, or crossing oneself in worship, or the use of images within the house of God, the vast majority of churches today, since they permit these to a lesser or greater degree, follow that principle rather than the regulative principle. because they don't find it expressly condemned. And again, without the regulative principle of worship, there is no principled way, this is extremely important to understand, there is no principled way to disallow these and many other practices into worship. What is allowed or disallowed outside of those elements of worship that are specifically commanded is ultimately based upon mere human preference. That's what it boils down to. After you leave express prescriptions and commandments of God, then everything else is simply a, a matter of human preference. And that's why, I mean, probably a lot of churches will try and be a little more theological than simply saying, <clears throat> it's, we just prefer to do it this way. But after you get down to the point of asking, where does God command it? Where is the prescription for what you're doing? Then you find out very quickly 
that this is a preference. <clears throat> moving to another point, dealing with worship, but moving from the regulative principle, this question arises. What is the distinction between elements of worship and circumstances of worship? You'll read as you um, read literature dealing with worship from the Second Reformation, from the Covenanters. You'll see, see these words, elements of worship, circumstances of worship. And we need to understand the distinction. Uh, I think it's very helpful to see that distinction. First of all, the elements of worship are all those parts of the ordinary religious worship of God that are prescribed in Scripture. Elements of worship are the ordinary parts of worship, the main heads of worship, those things that we do, that God has commanded for us to do in worship. For example, in the uh, <coughs> Confession of Faith, it identifies these. Prayer, the singing of psalms, reading of Scripture, the preaching of God's Word, the administration of the sacraments, the ordinary um, uh, elements of worship, religious worship, that are prescribed in Scripture. Now, elements of worship are distinct one from the other, so that one cannot replace the other in worship so that just because, for example, just because we have praised God by singing psalms, we can't say that takes the place of prayer. Or just because we've prayed, we can't say, well, now we've prayed to God, we don't need to praise God with the singing of psalms. One cannot be substituted or take the place of the other. Or because we read the Word of God, we don't have to preach the Word of God. Or because we preach, we don't need to read the scripture, no, they're individual elements prescribed by God that must occur when we worship the Lord each Lord's day. <clears throat> what about circumstances of worship? Circumstances of worship are those means by which we perform the elements of worship. I'll say that again. Circumstances of worship are those means by which we perform the elements of worship. For example, how, when, and where we are to pray, sing psalms, read the scripture, preach the word, and administer the sacraments are circumstances of worship. If you ask questions like how, when, and where about the elements, those ordinary parts of worship, then you're talking about circumstances of worship. Now, there are two, we keep uh, defining uh, terms here, but it's necessary to do so. There are two types of circumstances related to worship. Two categories of circumstances. There are commanded circumstances and discretionary circumstances. There are commanded circumstances 
and discretionary circumstances. Now, some have uh, tried, and we're going to explain what commanded circumstances and discretionary circumstances are, but let me say that some have tried to argue that all circumstances of worship are discretionary. That if you can some way or another take an element of worship, say the singing of psalms, and if you can say that, that, that singing is a form of prayer, and therefore, singing is not an element of worship, but rather a circumstance of worship, that it's therefore automatically a discretionary circumstance, and you can sing whatever you want to sing. But that's not the case. First of all, singing is not a circumstance. Singing is an element. We are commanded to praise God with song and to sing psalms unto him, specifically singing psalms. And so, the uh, uh, I would simply, again, simply say that the, uh, the view that uh, all circumstances are discretionary is uh, uh, absolutely wrong. There could be nothing further from the truth There are many, many commanded circumstances in Scripture that relate to how, when, and where we worship. For example, is it a discretionary circumstance as to which day we are to sanctify in order to worship the Lord? We have a a choice when we talk about when we're to worship God as to the day. No, it is a commanded circumstance prescribed circumstance, the first day of the week. Was it, in the Old Covenant, a discretionary circumstance as to where the priests of God were to offer their sacrifices? No. It was a commanded circumstance. You are to offer the sacrifices in the tabernacle or the temple. You're not to build your own your own independent altars, wherever you choose. There is a place to worship God by means of offering sacrifices to God. Another one, was it a discretionary circumstance as to how the temple of God was to be built? You read through Exodus and you find the great care and you find the exact details commanded by God to make the temple or the tabernacle in this manner. And later on, the same thing having been given to David as to how to make the temple. These are circumstances, but they are not discretionary circumstances. They are commanded, prescribed by God. Is it a discretionary circumstance as to how we should sing sing psalms under the new covenant, whether with instruments, as did the priests of the old covenant, or with simply our voices, as in the worship of the new covenant. It's not a discretionary circumstance, because under the old covenant, it was commanded to be done in a particular manner. That takes it out of the realm of discretion. The priest could decide whether or not they wanted to sing using 
uh, instruments or not, they were commanded to sing with the use of instruments. And so it's not discretionary. What about in the New Covenant? Well, when we come to New Covenant worship, there is no mention of using uh, instruments with singing in God's worship here upon the earth, worshiping the Lord each Lord's Day. Nothing is said with regard to that. And so again, because there is silence, that doesn't mean there is permission to use it. Silence, remember, means that we are forbidden from doing so. It's not discretionary. It's commanded. What are some discretionary circumstances then that we might uh, see in, in worship? Well, these are discretionary circumstances. <clears throat> How many psalms we sing in worship? Not explicitly stated. One, two, three, four. Which psalms we sing in worship? Well, we're confined to the 150, but which of the 150 should we sing? We have discretion there. What text from Scripture should be used in the sermon? Which text? Discretion. How many points should there be in the sermon? Discretion. Whether we use chairs or pews in the building? Discretionary circumstance. What time we meet for worship? Discretionary circumstance. See, these are questions, and this is something that is characteristic of discretionary circumstances. These are questions common to all societies and organizations and which are not regulated by the express commands of God, but rather by prudence and the general principles of God's word. They're regulated by prudence and the general principles of God's word, not by commands of God. And so there's discretion that can be used. And that's even alluded to in a quote that I mentioned earlier from the preface to the Directory for Public Worship. They said this, you remember, wherein our care hath been to hold forth such things as are of divine institution in every ordinance, and every ordinance meaning every element of worship, and other things we have endeavored to set forth, other things would be circumstances, uh, uh, discretionary circumstances, and other things we have endeavored to set forth according to the rules of Christian prudence agreeable to the general rules of the word of God. The second main point in answer to the question, what is Presbyterian worship? is this. Presbyterian worship is worship led by lawful ministers. And I would say especially the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. Those two elements of worship are jealously guarded. There there are occasions in which ministers 
in which we find in the standards, those who are not ministers may read the scriptures. For example, uh, licentiates or probationers, those who have been examined but have not yet been ordained to the ministry, may read the scriptures. Uh, It talks about that uh, one who is qualified can lead the Psalms. And so there are those who can participate in worship, but the two items in particular that are jealously guarded by by Presbyterian uh, worship and government are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. And you might ask, why such jealous care of these? Well, in particular, uh, because the word of God must be preached faithfully, one must be qualified and set apart, recognized to do so. Not just anybody can get up and preach, can authoritatively teach the word of God. One must be set apart to do so. And because the sacraments and the word of God go hand in hand in that the sacraments are the visible uh, declaration of the word of God, the gospel, that they must be faithfully administered according to the standards of God's word. That we cannot, we cannot veer off of, from God's word in administering the, the sacraments. And uh, so there must be those two especially, I would say certainly in prayer, because prayer is not only um, directed toward God, but is also a means of, of uh, teaching others as well and uh, uh, expounding the word even in the course of praying. Uh, that as well um, uh, is jealously guarded uh, by, uh, by Presbyterianism in worship. In both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, we find worship conducted by only those whom God has set apart to do so. Whether the priests of the temple or the teachers within the synagogues, they had to be set apart, recognized uh, to do so, the rabbis, the teachers, and uh, no doubt uh, many of those who were set apart were Levites uh, who uh, were uh, of that tribe who were teachers within the uh, within the synagogues throughout the land, or the apostles, prophets, pastors, or teachers of the new covenant were those who were set aside uh, to uh, to lead worship. Again, not just anybody uh, could uh, lead in worship, particularly preaching and administering the sacraments. Only those who have been called by God, tested, approved, and ordained by presbytery, are stewards of the mysteries of God. (coughs) Just to very quickly substantiate this point, 1 Corinthians 4.1, the Apostle Paul States, let a man so account of us, how should a man look at us, he says, as of ministers of Christ, 
and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's true of the apostles, but it's also true of all of those whom the apostles have set apart uh, to serve in that capacity, to minister on behalf of Christ. Ministers of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. They are to, uh, uh, to protect, to defend, and to apportion the mysteries of God to God's people. Those uh, elements, those truths from God's word contained in the preaching and into the administration of the sacraments. That is given to the ministers of God. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, it says that Christ gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith. In 1 Timothy 5.22, we are exhorted, Timothy is exhorted, we are by application, not to lay hands suddenly upon any man. Make sure he's tested and approved according to the qualifications that are mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Don't lay hands suddenly upon any man and thereby participate, partake of his sin. See, if you quickly ordain and set aside someone to to, uh, ministry who is not qualified, who is not ready, you participate in their sin by laying hands on him. And then Hebrews 5.4 says this, Hebrews 5.4, speaking of the high priest, but uh, uh, one, it says, in ver- uh, I'll read uh, chapter 5, verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Then it says in verse 4, concerning the office of high priest, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. And so, the application being that one needed to be called by God to be an officer in the Old Testament church, one needs to be called by God and not take the office to himself in the New Covenant Church as well. Only those who are in a faithful church, therefore, have a legitimate authority and right to perform ordinances on behalf of Christ. Those who are in unfaithful churches though they may administer the ordinances, though they may be administering the ordinances, do not have a legitimate right and authority from Christ to do so. A church that is not faithful to Jesus Christ in doctrine, government, and worship is a church that cannot lawfully represent Christ and perform his ordinances. 
a church that is distorting and perverting the truth is not ministering on behalf of Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, they cannot legitimately administer the ordinances. Such churches as are not uh, faithful in these areas, such churches we should not attend or visit and such ministers we should not receive ordinances from. That does not mean that they uh, may not be Christians. That we're not making that kind of a statement. We're not saying uh, anything concerning uh, the members of that congregation as to their relationship with Jesus Christ. We're simply making a statement concerning their rightful authority to do so. In the civil realm, if you have a court that is not administering according to God's law, they may administer decisions all the time. But they do not have a lawful authority and right to do so. We may rejoice in all the decisions that they make that are according to the Word of God, and we can receive them because they are in agreement to the Word of God, even though it may not be a lawful court that we can recognize. In like manner, where there is a church court that is not administering Christ's justice, administering Christ's commandments and his ordinances faithfully, not following what Christ has given to them to administer, in like manner, we will rejoice in all things that are consistent with the word of God that they do. We can rejoice in that. But at the same time, we cannot encourage people to go and sit under the ministry of those particular people. Because, again, one has lawful authority uh, to administer the ordinances according to the faithfulness of their doctrine, government, and worship. In Hebrews 13.7, we find these words. This is what you're to do with those who are faithful and lawful ministers. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. So follow them. On the other hand, in 3 John... Notice what it says in 3 John, verse 10. <coughs> Apparently there was one who was a leader, a minister, an elder in that congregation, uh, in a congregation to which uh, uh, John refers. It says in verse 10, Wherefore, if I come... Let me begin with verse 9. I'm sorry, 3 John, verse 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. He's excommunicating people according to a false standard, putting people outside of the church. What does he say in verse 11? 
Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Now, verse 12. Here's an example to follow. Follow this man. Sit under his teaching. Demetrius hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. And then one last passage here under this point. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. We've referred to this before. Chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which ye received of us. That's a minister as well. That's a minister who would not be faithful, withdraw from him. And if it's true of a brother, if it's true of a minister, then it's certainly true of a corporate group of professing Christians as well. Withdraw if they walk disorderly, not according to the truth, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. The third and final aspect of, of Presbyterian worship is that Presbyterian worship is worship in uniformity. That is, Presbyterian worship does not emphasize letting each congregation worship as they please, but rather emphasizes being of one mind and practice in the worship of God. Striving for uniformity in worship. Now, this is the teaching of the scripture, uniformity in worship. How many different practices of worship were there in the Old Testament? <clears throat> Was that a debatable issue? You could worship in, uh, under the Old Covenant. You know, Some of you could worship this way and that's acceptable. Others of you can worship this way. Uh, that's acceptable. It really doesn't matter how you worship. We all worship the same God. That's what's important. No, you won't find that at all in the Old Testament. You are to worship according to God's prescription, according to what he has commanded. There is to be uniformity in worship. Only one, Nadab and Abihu, found out very quickly that uh, there is only one pattern for worship. Uh, They were smitten, stricken by God, consumed by God for offering strange fire in Leviticus 10.1. Well, what about in the New Testament? What is the New Testament teaching as to practices, various practices in worship. Well, the New Testament as well teaches there's only one practice to be followed in worship. Uniformity in worship. <clears throat> For example, uh, I will just give you a brief sampling, but in Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, we find these words. From Paul, now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One mind and one mouth. In other words, believing the same things, 
and speaking in praise the same things, following the same worship practice together. Not many, but it is always a uniformity, a oneness that the New Testament writers are striving for. Not diversity in, in worship. Diversity in gifts, but not diversity in worship, doctrine, or government. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, as well, after Paul discusses the issue of women being uh, covered in worship, he says in verse 16, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom. What does he mean, we have no such custom? Well, uh, in verse 13, the question is asked, is it comely that a, that a woman pray unto God uncovered? He says in verse 16, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom of women praying to God in worship uncovered. Neither the churches of God. Do you see the emphasis upon the uniformity within the churches? Neither the churches of God. Apostolic custom we have no such custom. All the apostles, neither the churches of God. In chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verses 33 through 37, after, after the conclusion of his discussion, his correction concerning various, uh, various parts in worship, um, he says, in conclusion... For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Now, would there not be, this is a question, but hope you can see this clearly, would there not be confusion if every church was worshiping God in its own way? That would not be as in all the churches of God, That would be in each church as it deems best. But God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And he goes on to talk about women, in particular, what their role is in the worship service, to be silent, to listen, to to ask their husbands at home if they have a question. And then, verses verses 36 and 37, Paul says, in case there is a question, in case somebody might tend to be contentious about these issues, what does Paul say? Issues related to worship. What? Came the word of God out from you? Did the word of God come from you? Or came it unto you only? Did it not come unto you? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things that I write unto you are the commandment of the Lord. These are not debatable. There is to be uniformity. And then, finally, in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, we find the Apostle Paul saying to the... uh, Brethren, there. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. 
hold the traditions. The tradition of the apostles is binding because it comes from the revealed uh, will of God. Hold to these traditions, whether by word or by epistle. And those traditions concern doctrine, they concern worship, and they concern government. Hold to them. There, you can't choose not to follow the tradition of the apostles. And so, uniformity in worship is the teaching of Scripture, and it's also the teaching of our own standards, where we find in the preface, again, to the Directory for Public Worship, these words, but that we may in some measure answer the gracious providence of God which at this time calleth upon us for further reformation and may satisfy our own consciences and answer the expectation of other Reformed churches and the desires of many of the godly among ourselves and withal give some public testimony of our endeavors for uniformity in divine worship, which we have promised in our solemn league and covenant." And so those are the three main points as to what Presbyterian worship is. Now I have just one last major point, and we can get through this very quickly. Um, questions concerning the directory for the public worship of God in two areas that have come to my attention primarily. The first is concerning the burial of the dead. Uh, in page 390 in, the, in this volume, um, put out by the Free Presbyterian Church. It says, concerning the burial of the dead, <clears throat> when any person departeth this life, let the dead body upon the day of burial be decently attended from the house to the place appointed for public burial and there immediately interred without any ceremony. And because the custom of kneeling down and praying by or towards the dead corpse and other such usages in the place where it lies before it be carried to burial are superstitious, and for that praying, reading, and singing, both in going to and at the grave, have been grossly abused, are no way beneficial to the dead, and have proved many ways hurtful to the living, therefore let all such things be laid aside." Howbeit, we judge it very convenient that the Christian friends which accompany the dead body to the place appointed for public burial do apply themselves to meditations and conferences suitable to the occasion, and that the minister, as upon other occasions, so at this time, if he be present, may put them in remembrance of their duty, that this shall not extend to deny any civil respects or deferences at the burial suitable to the rank and condition of the party deceased while he was living." Uh, what this basically says is that um, our modern practice, as far as uh, what we find practice today of having uh, elaborate funerals, uh, was not what was practiced by the Reformed churches at that time, uh, nor is it the practice uh, of, of churches that were faithful even prior to that. Uh, this type of pomp and circumstance is associated with the Roman Catholic Church. 
uh, as to funerals and, the, and all of the special ceremonies and rites and things like that. But, uh, but as far as faithful churches, uh, there have been uh, simply, they've been concerned with simply uh, taking the body uh, respectfully to the place of burial and uh, interring the body. And if the minister is present, that it says there that the minister can uh, uh, remind those present of their duties and obligations uh, at that particular point. <clears throat> and I would just cite by way of evidence uh, for this uh, perspective or this view. Uh, first of all, there are no examples of funeral services in the scripture. Um, uh, no funeral services as you look through all the places many burials in the scripture but no funeral services where there was preaching, singing uh, uh, or anything like that mourning, yes grieving, yes um, tears, yes but a funeral service, no um, uh, you know the greatest example there was no funeral service for the Lord Jesus Christ uh, even Jesus didn't have a funeral service, uh, only a burial. And uh, he had a great deal of respect. Uh, there were those who brought uh, various uh, spices and this type of thing. Uh, and he uh, was taken from the cross and buried in the tomb of a wealthy man. Uh, but <clears throat> no funeral service. Um, Furthermore, funeral services uh, of today may certainly involve uh, any of us in, in doing exactly what we said we shouldn't be doing earlier, and that is listening to, to teaching coming from unlawful un, uh, ministers. Um, and we're, uh, again, not to sit under their preaching and teaching. Um, and it may put places in a situation where uh, unwittingly we'd, we would, in a sense, be consenting to uh, other forms of unlawful worship like uh, uninspired hymns, the use of instruments in, in acts of worship, these types of things, uh, besides the prayers that might be offered uh, uh, as well that would be filled with, uh, uh, with things that are not biblical. Uh, another reason, many abuses are associated with funeral services, um, such as prayers for the dead. Um, you know, I've heard in funeral services, whether it was, again, unwittingly, uh, but uh, uh, I've heard people in funeral services speak to the dead, uh, pray uh, in, in a prayer that was offered to God, mention, you know, someone by name uh, as if they were speaking directly to them. A lot of these kinds of things. Um, um, and then eulogizing the dead. Um, people that you know, for example, uh, I've been in, again, services where <clears throat> uh, no, having known people and hearing what was said concerning them didn't sound like the same person at all. And uh, this, uh, this happens quite frequently. Um, see, our standards caution us to keep a burial simple in order to avoid these abuses. And I think that it's, it's a good uh, precaution to take on our part. And I think that we uh, uh, are therefore obligated uh, to follow that uh, that uh, caution. So I think that it's best for all of us, as we consider this issue, to try to address this with our family, uh, extended family in particular, as soon as possible, to avoid uh, that becoming an issue. Uh, 
because of, in our, in our judgment at least, the untimely death of a loved one uh, placing us in that situation. It's much better to try to arrange a time and just to go through these, uh, these things with loved ones to let them know it's not because you're angry with them, not because you despise them or hate them or don't uh, care for them, but there are uh, particular issues uh, at stake and trying to be as faithful to the Word of God as possible uh, that these are the reasons. And the other one simply, and very quickly, uh, in the Directory for Public Worship, concerns the lining out of the Psalms. And in the Directory, uh, it says this, concerning the lining out of the Psalms. that the whole congregation may join herein. Everyone that can read is to have a psalm book and all others not disabled by age or otherwise are to be exhorted to learn to read. But for the present, where many in the congregation cannot read, it is convenient that the minister or some other fit person appointed by him and the other ruling officers do read the psalm line by line line by line before the singing thereof. (coughs) And it is uh, uh, the uh, primary, I think, concern has to do with the the, uh, qualification that's placed within that paragraph for the present time, uh, which leads uh, many to believe that, that it was only intended uh, to be used at that time when it's no longer the circumstances no longer apply that that any church can then there uh, upon uh, change to singing continuously rather than lining out the psalms and so that <coughs> seems to be the primary reason that's stated <coughs> uh, I would simply cite, cite five reasons very quickly why I think that uh, that uh, we must continue the practice of lining out the Psalms uh, under our present circumstances. <clears throat> First of all, I do believe that lining of, out of the Psalms is uh, agreeable to the Word of God. I believe it's agreeable to the Scripture. See, the Scripture does not state how we are to sing the Psalms, whether we're to sing them continuously or whether we're to sing them by lining them out. Uh, there is no uh, uh, commanded circumstance. This is, I believe, a discretionary circumstance when it comes to worship. So, therefore, uh, would it be sinful to sing continuously? No, I don't believe it would be. Is it sinful to sing um, by lining the psalm out? No, I don't believe so. I believe that both practices... Uh, because it's not explicitly stated uh, as to or commanded uh, that it's not a commanded circumstance. It is a discretionary circumstance. However, I would say that in certain circumstances, it's, it seems most plausible that the uh, songs that were sung were sung by lining them out, particularly in situations like in, uh, in Exodus 15. The Song of Moses, as soon as they cross the Red, uh, the Red Sea, as soon as the Egyptians are destroyed, Moses receives this, this uh, rather long song from God and the whole people of Israel join in singing it with him. Now, 
millions of, uh, of uh, probably uh, people, counting men, women, and children, how did they all sing this together? Most likely, Moses read a line or spoke a line, and they sung a line. Certainly the most plausible explanation, uh, since they didn't have time to write out copies and distribute it to everybody that was there. <clears throat> and uh, when David introduced uh, some of his psalms uh, on, on uh, the first, at least the first occasions, it certainly makes sense that uh, until these psalms were memorized uh, or recorded for the, uh, uh, for the Levites to sing, for the people to sing, that the psalms were lined out as well. So it appears to me and uh, to our elders that this uh, is uh, very important to, to understand, that it is agreeable uh, to Scripture. Second uh, argument or evidence is that uh, lining out the psalms is consistent with the principle of love. Uh, I think it's principle of the law, the law of love. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Um, we ought to uh, love those who are in our congregation who could participate in worship but who are not able to do so because they cannot read yet. Uh, we would apply the same principle uh, to those who uh, were deaf uh, we would believe that we were compelled if we had those who were deaf in our congregation to, uh, uh, to do the same thing, um, to uh, not line the psalms out, but to sign uh, the, uh, uh, the worship service, to have someone sign it for those who were uh, deaf so that they could uh, participate in worship as much as possible. Or if we had uh, uh, immigrants from another country uh, who agreed with us in our, in our doctrine and worship and government, we wouldn't send them down the street to another church. We would try and find an interpreter to interpret the service for them. It would take a lot longer for the service. It might be a little uh, difficult. It might be inconvenient in many ways, but that would be the loving thing to do in order to minister to people. And so we, we would say this is consistent with this principle of love uh, as well. Uh, the third uh, reason is, uh, as I've already mentioned, lining is a discretionary circumstance and not a commanded uh, circumstance. So I think that we can, uh, in this, whether it's lining or whether it is singing continuously, I believe we can exercise uh, prudence and in, in discretion in this particular area without sinfully uh, violating the Word of God. Uh, fourthly, uh, has to do with our form of government. Presbyterian form of government forbids us as a session from changing the lawful decisions of General Assembly. It was a General Assembly that established this particular practice. And uh, we are an inferior court to that particular court uh, until we have a General Assembly that can make changes such as these if the circumstances so warrant, then we can uh, change the practice. But to just independently seek to change it would be to not to act as a Presbyterian, but to act as an independent. Could the churches at that particular time within Scotland choose independently or Presbyteries at that time choose independently to sing continuously in violation of this particular uh, uh, part of the Directory for Public Worship? because they thought, well, we don't have anybody in our congregation in that circumstance. Everybody uh, 
uh, can read in, in our congregation. Uh, so let's, uh, uh, let's, lie, let's uh, sing continuously, not line the Psalms out. No, that would have been to, again, break Presbyterian polity and government. Uh, so we cannot do that if we adhere to Presbyterianism. We view the Church of Scotland as being a superior court to our own. And we, uh, we believe they have ruled accordingly. And so we must, uh, we must uh, follow uh, their ruling until we have a General Assembly. <clears throat> and uh, the last reason is that they were seeking to promote uniformity of worship through this practice. You see, uh, it's possible that even some of the uh, uh, Scottish commissioners were not real excited about this particular practice. This was not the practice, apparently, in Scotland itself uh, to, uh, to line the Psalms out. Uh, it appears that this was something suggested by the English uh, Presbyterians uh, rather than the Scottish Presbyterians. And yet, for the sake of uniformity, because it was not disagreeable to the Word of God, they were willing to follow this particular practice. And so, um, I think that's important to, to realize as well. Um, though we may prefer to sing continuously, um, uh, we're not sinning uh, to, to line the Psalms out. And uh, we should follow the, in the footsteps of our forefathers. All right. Thank you for your patience uh, this evening. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.